Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. Hi, this is Aaron Nielsen. I'm a recent graduate from the MFA program at San Francisco State, and today I'll be reading my story, Jimmy, which was, in part, inspired by the complex and unlikely friendship between the two main characters in Mary Gateskill's recent novel, Veronica. This is Jimmy for Mary Gateskill. I tell my sister over the phone that Jimmy Hill called me this morning. She's quiet for a second, as if thinking about something. Then she asks, who? So I say slowly, James, pause, Hill. The queer kid we knew in high school. Oh, she feigns with mock surprise or interest. Yeah, him. Jimmy and I actually went to elementary school together. What I remember of him from that time was that he was a shy kid, more content to spend time on the swing set or playing with He-Man figures in the sandbox than playing touch football with the other boys. Due to some weird zoning rules, we ended up going to different middle schools, but because of the same weird districting, we met back up again in high school. We had Algebra 1 together our freshman year. Jimmy sat in the back of the class, hunched over his notebook, scribbling down poems or drawings or anything but the algebraic formulas the teacher was meticulously writing on the overhead projector. For the most part, he looked the same. Of course he was taller, a little thinner, maybe. His sandy blonde hair was longer, unkept, greasy. His cheeks were dotted with a few outcroppings of acne, but nothing too bad. But underneath all of the adolescent awkwardness, you could still see the soft-spoken, doe-eyed third grader in him. So what's he been up to, my sister inquires. He lives in Austin now, Austin, Texas. So, out of the frying pan of Boulder and into the fire of Austin? He seems happy. He has a boyfriend. They live together. So, why do you move to Texas? My sister asks, with a faint note of disgust in her voice. I don't know. I didn't ask. It wasn't until our sophomore year that he started to get strange. It was small things at first. It began, I think, with him wearing fingernail polish or piercing his ears. Then he dyed his hair black, chopped it short in the back, but left the bangs long, a crow-colored curtain shielding his face from the world. Eventually, all the color began to filter out of his wardrobe until all he wore was black. Black clothes, black hair, black nails, jangly black bondage bracelets on each skinny wrist. The only thing he wore that broke with his monochrome ensemble were a ragged pair of bright red Converse high tops that he drew all over with pen. It was around this time that he and I started hanging out. He began showing up at the quick stop parking lot to smoke cigarettes and occasionally weed in the morning before class. He stood out even among the other stoners. We were all jeans, combat boots, and Alice in Chains or Led Zeppelin t-shirts. None of us toted around a lunchbox with the Cure, Slayer, Marilyn Manson, Hole, and Bauhaus stickers on it. I can still see him now, sitting on the curb in front of the convenience store, balancing that lunchbox on his knobby knees, digging through it for his pack of Marlboro Reds, brushing his hair out of his face while he lit one with a match. He, for some reason, never had a lighter. It was always matches. It wasn't until Columbine happened a few years later, after we had already graduated, that I heard the word goth. I guess that's what Jimmy was. But this was back when Pearl Jam was still relevant and there wasn't a hot topic in every mall in America. Back when people thought Marilyn Manson was a chick. That really pissed Jimmy off. When people saw the sticker on his lunchbox and asked in earnest, 
Who's she? She looks scary. So what does he do in Austin? He's an IT guy for some law firm. Really? That's funny, my sister laughs. Why? I just can't see him doing that. It seems too technical for him. I always figured he'd end up an artist or in a band or something. Well, you usually can't feed yourself doing stuff like that. Guess not. Oh, speaking of feeding yourself, Mom wants us to go have brunch with her this Sunday. Great, I groan. After I hang up with my sister, I stare out of my kitchen window at the gray morning light before I get up and shuffle over to the coffee maker and then back to my room for a pair of pants because I'm still in my boxers. The first time that Jimmy and I ever hung out was, well, kind of weird. It started out weird. It was a Friday night or something. I know we didn't have school the next day. I remember that. What was odd about it was that other than small talk before school or lunch, Jimmy and I didn't really interact much, but for some reason he showed up at my house one night with a bottle of Jack. I thought that maybe he had gotten the wrong idea about me or something. I guess he sensed my apprehension or whatever because... After a few drinks, he sighed, then said, I don't want to sleep with you. I know you're not gay. I just wanted someone to hang out with. And the way he said it, there was this heaviness in his voice that stuck with me, that depressed me for some reason. I spent the rest of the night with him, driving around, drinking, and listening to Slayer. The image of him in my passenger seat, screeching along to Angel of Death in his nasal voice, will forever be etched in my mind. Surgery with no anesthesia. Feel the knife pierce you intensely, he wailed, completely off-key, while smacking his hands on my dashboard in perfect counter-rhythm to the drumming. But it didn't matter that he couldn't keep the beat or sing very well, because we were laughing, because we were having fun. It ended up not being so weird. At the end of the night, sometime before morning, we were sitting in my car out in front of my house, finishing what was left of the whiskey, when I asked him how he got into Slayer, because I thought that most gay guys listen to Madonna or Tori Amos. He told me he listened to Slayer because he was afraid of them as a kid, and he figured if he was scared of them, other people would be too, and so when they found out he listened to them, they'd be scared of him by default and wouldn't fuck with him. He listened to Slayer so that people might think of him as a man, he said. I told him that's the saddest thing I'd ever heard. I'm in the bathroom shaving, coffee mug perched on the sink next to me, and I don't think I look so hot for being only 30. My forehead has weathered and creased. My eyes have perpetual bags around them, no matter how much sleep I get. My hair is still there, though, so I have that to be thankful for, I suppose. Despite that what Jimmy had told me about Slayer was depressing, he was right. It worked. He was never fag-bashed in high school. Other kids were. This one guy who was in drama in the marching band, he was beat so bad after a football game our junior year that he was in the hospital for a week. Broken ribs, fractured skull. People left Jimmy alone. The kids that didn't know him thought he was a Satanist, and the kids who did know him liked him. Another thing that probably saved Jimmy's ass was that he didn't hang out with the few other gay or suspected gay kids at our school. He said he didn't get along with them didn't have anything in common with them. They didn't listen to Slayer. I go back out into the kitchen, drop two pieces of toast in the toaster, and then sit down at the table. I shuffle through my bills, put the overdue ones at the top of the pile, 
figure out if I can afford to pay more than the monthly minimum on my Visa card, etc. When the cheap white plastic toaster launches my almost burnt toast up with a dry metallic snap, I jump, dribbling coffee on my car insurance statement. Just because Jimmy didn't get shit in high school because people thought he would eat their cat doesn't mean that I didn't. Mostly it was small annoying things, like my friends coming up to me at lunch, or after school, or wherever, with worried looks on their faces inquiring, Are you gay? Or, Are you and James a couple? It's cool if you are. Even my mother weighed in on the subject by constantly reiterating how interesting she thought my little friend was. The only time, though, that my friendship with Jimmy truly became problematic was in P.E. one year. While we were changing before class... The fat fuck whose name I can't remember, but who had the locker next to mine, turned to me, wearing only his jock strap, flaccid belly, streaked with bunched purple stretch marks, sagging over the waistband. He turned to me, his mouth spread open, porcine rictus, a bloated sneer, and he said, I saw you making out with your girlfriend Jimmy this morning. My fist slammed into his bottom jaw, bouncing his head back against his locker with a tinny crash. As he stood there in shock, I finished dressing. But before I went out to the field for roll call, I got up in the cow's face and told him, point blank, I'm not a faggot. I scraped the dark spots off my toast with the edge of a spoon. Then I attempt to rub fridge cold butter on it, but it doesn't work so well, so I use strawberry jam instead. The sky is lighter now, not so gray anymore, I notice. I never told Jimmy what had happened. It really wasn't about him anyway, It was about me and what that fucker was insinuating. I was defending myself, not him. I finish my toast, brush the crumbs off the plate, and then set the plate in the dishwasher before pouring myself another cup of coffee. Even though Jimmy and I had quite a few things in common, we liked a lot of the same bands, both had a tendency to drink to excess, both able to out-drink the rest of our friends, both prone to bouts of depression... There were certain points where our tastes diverged, drastically and uncomfortably. One major point of contention that I remember was over this one writer that Jimmy adored, Dennis Cooper. All Jimmy did was yammer on about how great and how awesome this guy was, so I was like, sure, let me borrow one of his books. I couldn't finish it. It was about these older guys molesting and mutilating younger boys. That and the writing just wasn't that great. It read like Cooper was heinously stoned while he was clicking away at his laptop. An entire landscape populated with butt-licking, drugged-out zombies hacking each other up and saying, Duh. I didn't like it. I didn't understand how anyone could like it. I gave the book back to him the next day at lunch. As I slid it across the flaking green picnic table, Jimmy's face lit up. He smiled. Wow, you finished it already? Awesome. No, I muttered. He arched one eyebrow as if to say, oh really, why not? It was gross, really gross. I don't know how you can read stuff like this. He looked away, then pulled up the hood to a zip-up sweatshirt, the one he had studded with spikes and band pins, and even before I took Psych 101, I knew this was a defensive gesture on his part. I crossed my arms, and he looked back over at me and explained it. He said he liked the books because he felt for the boys in them. He wanted to hold them and tell them that love is possible, that you don't have to let people kill you, 
that you can be safe and okay. He told me that he wanted to save all those imaginary boys that Cooper cut up and fucked in his novels. But you can't save them. They're not real. I know, he said. Why do you like to torture yourself? I asked. I don't know, he sighed. I flipped through the small stack of bills again, not yet ready to take out my checkbook, part with my money so soon. For what I've paid for DirecTV and TiVo this year, I could have bought a plane ticket to Italy. I've never been to Italy, probably never will, but at least I can pause live TV. Thinking about these things makes me want to start popping Xanax, but it's still too early for that, I decide. The last time I took those before noon, I spent the entire day zonked on the couch, sometimes staring at the TV, other times nodding off. I don't think I ever enjoyed watching the Food Network so much. But even through the benzodiazepine-induced haze, I still thought Rachel Ray was grating. I guess the Dennis Cooper incident sticks with me because of what Jimmy did afterward. It was almost like something from one of those books. He didn't want to save those boys. He wanted to be one of those boys. It was a school night, and I was already asleep when he called, sobbing, hysterical. I didn't know what was going on. It took 20 minutes for him to calm down enough to tell me that he was calling from the payphone in front of the Dillards at the mall. When I went to pick him up, he was pacing around the front of the store, cigarette in one hand, the other pulling at his hair. He would reach up, run his fingers through his hair, yank, then let go, and then start again. His t-shirt was on inside out, and he wasn't wearing his hoodie. It was the middle of October and cold. I had to get out of the car and guide him into the passenger seat. He was so adult, it didn't really register that I was there. I'm surprised mall security hadn't found him before I did. He was pretty bad off. His face was empurpled, eyes bloodshot, and a continual torrent of snot poured from his nose, and he didn't bother to wipe it off. Once he was sedate enough, the details began to come intermittently. AOL chat room. 27-year-old guy. Hotel room. I didn't want to. He said it would be okay. Then there was a pause. Jimmy crumpled in on himself, started smashing his fists against the side of his head before he blurted out. He didn't use a condom. Maybe it isn't too early for a Xanax. Maybe what it's too early for is to be thinking about this shit. What happened next was one of those moments in your life that you replay constantly. One of those moments you wish would have happened differently. Even now, more than ten years after the fact, I still regret that I called him a fucking idiot. Those were the words that came out of my mouth after he told me what happened. I was enraged that he would put himself in that situation. I was enraged that he let himself be hurt, that someone hurt him, and that now I was going to have to watch one of my friends die of AIDS. I still think that what he did was stupid. That'll never change. But I didn't need to tell him that, then, there in that moment. I'll never forget the look on his face after I said it. He looked at me like I was the one who had just violated him. I shake one pinkish peach pill from the amber bottle, then set it back on the shelf for a second before deciding that one isn't going to cut it. I swallow two more, and then take the bottle with me out of the bathroom into the living room.
Even though I apologized that night on the drive to his house, things just weren't quite the same between us again. He started to miss a lot of school. We didn't really hang out much, and when we did, he would just get morbidly drunk and cry. He was hospitalized more than once our senior year for alcohol poisoning. I was the one who made the appointment six or seven months after it happened. Jimmy told me that he couldn't get tested, that if he found out he was HIV positive, he would kill himself. I had already resigned myself to the fact that he most likely had it, that I was going to have to sit and watch him suffer and decay and know that he let that happen to himself, that it happened because he was too naive to know that you don't meet people off the internet in cheap motel rooms or anywhere for that matter. I didn't tell him where we were going, but I'm pretty sure he knew. He figured it out. He was silent for the entire car ride to the clinic, and when we got there, he just sat in the waiting room, his head down, staring at the floor. When they called him back into the office or wherever, he didn't move. I had to gently pull him up by his arm out of the chair. The week we had to wait for his results dragged on. We didn't talk about it. We just tried to ignore it. Pretend that on Friday afternoon, we weren't going to find out if Jimmy was going to live the rest of his life or wither up and die by the age of 40. He was calm the entire car ride back to the clinic, but once we got inside, he started to breathe funny, panicky, and pull at his hair the way he did that night I picked him up from the mall. I tried to tell him that it would be all right, even though I didn't think it would be. When they called him back to get his results, after he had left the waiting room and I was by myself, I started to cry. When Jimmy reappeared in the waiting room ten minutes later, he was sobbing. We hurried to my car where he showed me the test results. The sheet they had given him read in plain black letters, No HIV antibodies detected. I read the paper again, then grabbed him and hugged him, and for some reason, both of us started crying harder. After that, things were better, but then school was over. After we graduated, Jimmy moved to San Francisco for college, and I stayed here in Colorado. We emailed each other occasionally, but over the years, the emails were fewer and further in between. Before he called this morning, it had been at least two years since we had last been in contact with each other. I reached down and pick up the remote control and punch the power button because I just realized that I've been staring at the blank gray TV screen for the past half hour. Fucking idiot. To subscribe to the writer's block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.